0: Let me encourage you to have your Bible open in Matthew 6 at those really well-known words of our Saviour. We find ourselves at the moment for a month or two on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. On Sunday evenings, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And we probably are feasting on two of the richest and most comprehensive portions of God's Word. Uh, If you had just the Sermon on the Mount and Paul's letter to the Romans, you have pretty much all that you need to know what it is to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. Uh, We're thankful that the Lord's Word covers much more than that as well, these are two really very comprehensive portions of the Word of God that we're considering at the moment. It's our great, great privilege to be able to, to do that. And I don't know how, it, how it's been through you as we, for you as we've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount, but I find that the Sermon on the Mount uh, produces two main responses in me. It both challenges me and it comforts me at the same time, and almost in equal measure, I think. I find myself challenged because it becomes all too clear that for any one man or woman to even begin to live out all of the qualities and graces and characteristics which are found being expounded by Christ and exhorted by Christ in his sermon, there needs to be the most remarkable and radical change deep within us, the likes of which I simply could never conjure up within myself for myself. But then I'm comforted because Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he does so in such a way that he actually knows that these things are attainable. These things can be a reality in their lives. Actually, no. These things should be a reality in their lives. Well, how can, how can that be? Well, it's because this is the newness of life that they have in him, that he's talking about. The, the high ideals of how we are to live with one another, the, the searching realities of fulfilling religious duties before our God, But actually, which don't feel like a duty because they're driven by the deepest experience of a personal engagement with the living God. That's what Jesus is presenting in this sermon. Uh, All of this is the outworking of those graces which are summarised in verses 3 to 11 of chapter 1, the Beatitudes. And they are all the graces which God himself produces in you and me as his people. And so it is challenging because these are big things that Christ presents us with but there is comfort here as well because this is the life that he produces in you. I think they are intended to be both a challenge and a comfort. Jesus wants us to understand that these are things to which we must give ourselves and apply ourselves. There needs to be a conscious awareness and application of these things. These are graces and characteristics. They're not just all lived out subconsciously in us, but they're to be done with a zeal and with a commitment. But at the same time, this is not just some new version of the Old Testament law that Jesus is presenting us with. This is not the law of the Pharisees, Mark 2, Now go away and see if you can do it. See what kind of fist you can make of it. No, Jesus is describing that new life that you are raised to in him. He knows that. And so yes, we find it a challenge, but also we should find it to be a great comfort. He is describing the unavoidable consequences of receiving a new heart when you're born again. And that is all God's doing. And in one sense, this is his persuading you that 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 is what you now have within you as a Christian. He's both challenging you and describing you at the same time. This is what he, by his spirit, is producing in you. So it's important to remember this sermon is not become who you should be. This sermon is be who you've already become. There's a big difference between those two positions. It's not you become who you should be. It is be who you've already become in Christ. That's what's being exhorted to us here through the words of our Saviour. Of course, that's how much of Paul's teaching also reads. We'll be seeing exactly that this evening in Romans. Actually, there are some similarities between what Jesus says in this portion of his sermon and what Paul says this evening in his, that section of the letter that we're going to be looking at. B, B, who you have already become in Christ. And and in Romans, of course, B, that's the the ongoing process of our sanctification, who you've already become, that's our justification in Christ. And in the remainder of chapter 6, Jesus draws our attention to three further distinguishing features of a Christian And Christian living. Now, Of course, in many ways, what Jesus is doing throughout this whole sermon is viewing the same thing from a whole series of different viewpoints. From this perspective, in that situation, faced with this difficulty, confronted with that opportunity, opposed from this quarter, oppressed by that one. When you see that there's this great need, in all of these different things, this is how the Christian should be and live. And these three further distinguishing features, which by God's grace and with the help of his Spirit, are things that you and I need to take note of and to to seek to nurture in our lives, in our daily living. So what are these three things now that Jesus presents to us in the remainder of chapter 6? Well, here's the first thing, and it's verses 19 to 23, which we'll put under this heading, where you store your treasure. Where you store your treasure. There should be a commonality amongst all of us on this issue. Where you store your treasure. And of course, where you store it is determined by what your treasure is. And what your treasure is, is whatever controls and dominates your heart. Verse 21. We have a saying, don't we, that your heart is in it, or their heart isn't in it. Where the heart is, that thing which your heart is in the most, that is your treasure. So what is your treasure, and where are you storing it? Well, there are such things as earthly treasures, verse 19. Now, how might we describe earthly treasures in a single sentence? I spent a long time thinking about that during the week. You might think that's something not worth spending a lot of time on. I found it actually something, well, we do need to think about that, don't we? What are earthly treasures? I I concluded thinking about it like this. Earthly treasures are all of those things which men and women may enjoy and which men and women may choose to pursue and accumulate but do so without any reference to God in their lives. Earthly treasures are all of those things that you can chase after and have, but not have God in your life. Because that's what everyone who's not a believer is doing. And there are loads of things that they can chase after. There are loads of things that they can have. There are loads of things that they can accumulate and build up. And they don't have God in their life. And they actually don't need to have God in their life to have those things. But they are earthly treasures. They are not necessarily, in themselves, sinful things, although some of them will be. Some of them actually can be good things, needful things. But it's the, it's the controlling influence that those things can begin to have that's where it becomes a real issue and a real problem. Often in our lives, it starts out with things which are serving us. But then it reaches a point where we are serving them because they are controlling and influencing us. Uh, We're making choices based upon that. It's when these things become the main things in your heart. It's when those things are the things that you hold most dear. It's when... Those things are the things that you begin to use to assess whether or not your life has been fulfilled or successful. And it's all based upon earthly things that anyone could have, that anyone could chase after, even without God in their lives. But you start to use that to decide whether or not you've been fulfilled or successful. Now, the the mere having them of course, doesn't necessarily mean that they are your treasure. But a good indication of when something is a treasure actually is how frequently that thing is either replaced for a newer or better version, or when you have a growing collection of them, or how much of your time and resources are devoted to them. I remember watching a programme about the rich and famous in Monaco. It was uh, <clears throat> mind-opening, mind-boggling, and uh, just made me glad that I wasn't one of them in the end. Uh, very glad indeed. Uh, they were down at the, at the harbour, looking at all of the fabulous yachts in the marina at Monaco. And uh, they were talking to one uh, ridiculously wealthy owner, and he confessed he couldn't think of anyone who was still making do with the first yacht they ever bought. Isn't that interesting? Not one person he could think of that was making do with the first one. Because, well, you just can't put up with that, can you? I mean, look what he's got down there. And look at that one that's just pulling in. Everyone was constantly in pursuit of trading upwards because no one had ever reached a level of satisfied contentment. And they were never going to. You can't in that atmosphere. You can't when you breathe that air. You never do with those kinds of treasures. It's a never-ending, relentless treadmill of dissatisfaction. Or it shows itself in other ways, because we don't all live in Monaco. We don't all have the billions to spend on super yachts, do we? But for others who long ago realize, well, I'm never going to be in that league. I could never compete like that in the world. But they simply look around at their comparatively humble surroundings, tell themselves that they've actually done okay. And their humble surroundings are still their treasure. Because they pat themselves on the back. that they're going, to, they're going to die with more than they started out with. And they're going to leave behind more than their parents were able to leave behind. So maybe I've actually done okay. But of course, there's the really big problem with earthly treasures. One day you'll leave them all behind and you'll be left with nothing because earthly treasures are temporary and earthly treasures all are left behind. And within a few short years, no one even remembers you were there. In the middle of the 20th century, Terry Thomas was one of the most famous men in Britain. Now, some of you have never heard of Terry Thomas. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about. He was the gap-toothed comic actor who specialised in playing archetypal, uh, upper-class cads and rogues and bounders, as they used to call them back then. And he was very, very good at it. And he had a glittering film career. And he had all the affluent trappings that went with it, including several homes in several countries. But in the early 1970s, he was diagnosed with an incurable degenerative illness, which eventually robbed him of his ability to work. And it robbed him of his vast fortune. His homes were sold to pay for medical bills and health care. And he ended his days virtually penniless, being cared for in a home funded by charitable donations given by an actor's benevolent fund. Everything had gone, everything. Because if you're trusting in this world's treasures, that's what happens. Because treasures on earth are where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And it's all gone. The Christian, however, the Christian doesn't breathe that air, do you? The Christian is looking to eternity. And the Christian is storing up treasure there. The Christian understands the fleeting, temporary nature of the things of this life. So whilst we have the things of this life that we need, they are not the things that we put our heart into. You have earthly things. You need earthly things to be able to live. There are earthly things which can give a degree of pleasure and enjoyment, and it's not a sin necessarily to enjoy them. But that's not where your heart is. And you live with a very loose grip on earthly things. You're not hanging on to them for dear life. Because you don't need them for dear life, do you? They can't really give you dear life anyway. The source of your life lies elsewhere. You're not constantly pouring yourself into swapping and changing and upgrading this and that in this never-ending never cycle of accumulating the abundance of things. You give yourself to all the kinds of things that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew. Matthew. Because your concern above everything else is to become more and more like the one with whom you'll be spending eternity. To see his smile directed towards you as he welcomes you home. And to know that you've done your your utmost to love him and serve him and honour him in this world. Why would you work and work for that which you can never keep? only to lose that which lasts forever. That was the the famous saying of Jim Elliot, that young man who went as a missionary and very soon, at a very young age, was killed with some of his friends in South America. Earthly treasures are all of those things which you can lay hold of without any reference to God in your life. Which is not to say you cannot have any of them, but it's not where your heart is. Heavenly treasures, heavenly treasures are those things which you may only receive and only possess through the kindness and grace of God which you receive through Christ. They're the heavenly treasures. So, says Jesus in verse 22, what is it that you have your eyes fixed on? Do you remember in the Old Testament, um, Abraham had gone to rescue Lot and his family from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's wife was walking away from those two cities as God's judgment began to fall. But although she was walking away, her eyes looked back to where her heart remained. And the Lord struck her dead according to the warning he'd given. You see, it wasn't actually the direction she was walking that was the thing with Lot's wife. It was where she was looking. That was the issue. You've come to church this morning. But what are your eyes fixed on? Where is it you're looking? Your body is here, but are you here amongst the Lord's people? Are your eyes fixed upon the things of Christ and salvation and holiness and godliness and his word of truth and what he requires of you now that you're his child? What work he has yet to do in you? And through you as his instrument in this world. Or are your eyes constantly turning to those worldly things? Things which are lost and perishing in the darkness of sin. And the truth is, your eyes are betraying the things you long for the most. That's what that verse is all about. Your eyes, where you're actually looking, they are the giveaway as to what it is that that longing is within your heart. And it will either be things which are good, which are eternal, or things which are bad and which will only lead to ruin. It seems to me that as we I have the opportunity to, to look at these verses this morning. Jesus wants you and me to, to see afresh this morning. there are these two very distinct paths in the world. And you must be continually clear which is the one that you are walking as a child of God. He spells it out, "Oh so clearly," at verse 24. The life of a Christian, secondly, stands distinct upon the basis of who you follow as master. Because you can only have one. In Christ, you are no longer your own, you're under Him. Everything about you now is in submission to Him. Life is not about you, it's not about your home, it's not about your family. It's not about your employment. Actually, in a sense, uh, the church is not about you. It's all about Christ. Everything is about Christ. Of him, to him, through him are all things. Home and family is not about you anymore. First and foremost, it's about Christ. Your employment is not about you anymore. First and foremost, it's about Christ. Church, it's not about you and me ultimately, it's about Christ. All about Christ. Life now is about who it is you're serving. What it is he requires of you and he can require it of you because he is God and he's your Lord, he's your saviour. Either the Lord is your master or he isn't. And and that's the the truth that, that Jesus wants to both challenge you over and comfort you about. Are you prevented from serving him as you should because there are worldly things which have too strong a hold or a pull? Either your eye is good or your eye is bad. Either your treasure is earthly or it's heavenly. And Jesus makes it clear you can't really straddle the line here. You need to decide which side you're on. A holiday Bible club with the children, we remembered the story of the athlete Eric Little, who 97 years ago, at the peak of his fame and success, and like C.T stood before him, abandoned it all. And he abandoned these shores so that he could serve the Lord and, and share the gospel in China. And that's where he would end his days as a, as a comparatively young man. There was a man who knew what his treasure was. There was a man who knew where he was storing it. There was a man who knew that it was all reserved for him when this life was over. And speaking of C.T. Studd, who was... Eton and, ed- and Cambridge educated and as a young man we would say had the world at his feet. He spent his whole life as an adult serving the Lord in China, in India and in Africa. And it was C.T. Studd who said this, And you see, this gives away the heart of the man. I cannot tell you what joy it gave me to bring the first soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. And trust me, uh, coming from a family all those years ago who could afford to send their child to Eton and Cambridge, he knew what he was talking about. But, he said, those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the saving of that one soul gave me. See, there's a man who was storing up treasure in heaven. Let's decide and commit afresh this morning as to the one whom we serve. And to humbly acknowledge in our own hearts that he is master of all. And there the can, the, the cannot be a trying to have the best of both. Jesus makes that clear. You can't try and serve this and this. You can't be in the pursuit of God and be trying to pursue all these things at the same time, the way the world does. It just doesn't work. You have to be single-minded. You have to have a single eye. Do you see the progression that is flowing as Jesus teaches through this sermon? How he builds from one position to the next. If this is true of you, then. And if that is true of you, then. And it, and it progresses and flows And there's this thought process he's wanting us to go through as we listen to him in this sermon. He's wanting us to settle each of these things afresh in our own hearts and minds this morning as we have this passage open in our Bibles. Why would I continue to be so taken up with earthly things when I just pause to remember what I have in Christ? Why wouldn't I be single-sighted and single-minded in following Christ and living for him if I have in view that which is eternal? Why would I carry on having such affections and desires towards things which in a few short years will all be left behind? For me, be it Christ, be it Christ, hence to live. That's what Jesus is impressing upon us. So in your home, as a father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, in your place of work, whether you're the boss or a mere minion, in your studies at school or at university, here in the life of the church, first and foremost, above everything else, You live as one who is under the lordship and the mastery of Christ. That's what's first. That takes precedent over everything else. And for the most part, all of those other things will actually be for the better when you do. To give full attention to the lordship of Christ. That's not to say that all of these other things are totally neglected. In many ways, all of those things will become enhanced in a wonderful way that the world can't understand or experience or know. It will bring out all of these graces that Jesus is talking about in this sermon. To give full attention to the Lordship of Christ in your life, it will make you a more loving, caring, kind thoughtful, truthful, trustworthy, hard-working, reliable father, son, mother, daughter, boss, employee, student, you name it. It will work itself out in you and through you in all those other spheres of your living when Christ is first. You'll be living as one who has eternity in view And as one who's given yourself to becoming more and more like Christ, with your eyes fixed upon heaven, not with your heart fixed upon the things of the world. It will make you more generous with your possessions. It will make you far less troubled to spend your resources on others rather than on yourself. It might even make you sacrificial in your living. Careful that this is what forms the framework within everything else takes place. Who you follow as master is key. And that leads to our third and final point in this sermon from verse 25. What you put in first place. Actually, if you've, if you've sorted out points one and two, point number three virtually takes care of itself. What you put in first place. And Jesus begins, therefore, therefore, if you've grasped everything I've been saying so far, if you've truly taken hold of it and believed it, if these truths have truly taken hold of you, therefore, because of that, on account of that, why do you worry? about so many things. If you follow carefully the thread of everything Jesus has said so far in his sermon, as you get to verse 27 and you hear Jesus asking you, why do you worry? Do you know what our immediate reaction should be? Yeah. Why do I? Why do I? If all this is true, if this is the change that God has brought about in me through the gospel, if this now is how I'm living and who I'm living for and where my heart and mind and eyes are fixed, what on earth am I worrying about? If you've got your, if you've got settled in your own heart And in your own mind, the realities of chapter 5, and what prayer truly is all about. If you've discovered for yourself the secret place where you have earnest, heartfelt dealings with God. If you've got settled in your own heart and mind the reality of abandoning the pursuit of worldly things, because your eyes are fixed upon that which is eternal and heavenly, if you got settled in your own heart and mind who it is that is your master and that you have no loves or allegiances before your love and allegiance to him, if that's you, then what we read in verses 25 to 34 will no longer be a challenge or a rebuke, but instead ...become the most wonderful and obvious conclusion. Therefore, Jesus says to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What is it that Jesus wants to hear you say from your heart? Of course it is. Of course life is more than all of these things. Life is about you. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns. But your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Of course I am. Now, birds work very hard in gathering their food, mind you. They can't go online for nest day delivery, sorry. But it's God who supplies their every need. It's God who supplies. Of course he'll care for you. Of course he will. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to your stature well what a ridiculous notion that I ever thought I could so why do you worry about clothing Lord the worries are subsiding even now as I meditate on this truth that's what that's the response Christ wants to hear consider the lilies of the field how they grow they don't toil they don't spin Solomon in all his glory There was a man who had everything this world could give. He was not arrayed like one of these. Not like one. If God does that, for the grass of the field, which is here today, gone tomorrow, you, like me, are looking at all your summer flowers dying in your gardens right now. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Of course you will. Lord, forgive my unbelief. So don't worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. That's what the Gentiles are looking for. That's them. That's the world without God seeking earthly things and earthly pleasures and earthly treasures. Your heavenly Father knows you need those things. The problem is not the things, is it? It's my heart attitude towards them. That's the issue. Your Father knows you need those things. But, but, seek first the kingdom of God. And these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. And we just have to humble ourselves before our Master and Savior. Lord, of course. How could it be any other way for me when I have you? Jesus is saying. When you are in him, this is the real you. This is the real you if you are in Christ. Your heart fixed upon heaven's rewards. Your eyes fixed upon the goodness and mercy and grace and truth of God in Christ. One master and one only. Christ Jesus my Lord and my God and what you seek first before anything else and above everything else is him his kingdom his will his glory and as you do so the cares and the worries of this world recede as God assumes his rightful place in the lives of those who know him And love him, who are secure in the knowledge of his faithful, loving kindness. This is the real you if you are in Christ Jesus. And this is the God who will be with you.